Welcome to Concussion Stories, a Life Yana podcast series filled with hope. I'm here to let you know that you are not alone in your concussion recovery. I'm Melanie, and I spent more than six years experimenting, training, and learning in order to heal myself from a very bad case of post-concussion syndrome. And today, I feel better than ever before. In Concussion Stories, we dig deep while discussing hopeful stories of recovery, as well as the hard stuff in the messy middle. If you're struggling to focus, be sure to take a break. Down in the description of each episode, you can find a table of contents in case you want to skip ahead. Let's dive right in. Welcome to yet another episode with Dr. Ramon Diaz Aristia. As a leading researcher in the field of traumatic brain injury and a practicing neurologist, he has so much to share with you about concussion and post-concussion syndrome diagnosis and recovery. If you haven't listened to the first episode yet, I recommend you do that first to get a better understanding of everything our guest is talking about. Without further ado, let's hear Dr. Ramon Diaz Aristia. So I wanted to ask you um, one other thing that's very closely related to what we just discussed. Um, you and your colleagues uh, compose quite an extensive list of potential negative consequences um, of wrong estimates of TBI severity. So on the one hand, you um, describe overestimation, which can lead to, for example, a fe- fear of the future, right? And um, adaptation of unnecessary illness behavior. And when I read this, I could absolutely relate to this because um, when different doctors told me that my brain damage was beyond repair and that I had to learn to live with my debilitating symptoms, I tumbled into depression. And I wanted to ask you, what role do you feel that hope, so not false hope, but the possibility of hope or taking it away entirely has in post-concussion recovery consultations uh, by doctors. Well, gosh, I mean, hope, hope has a fundamental uh, role, frankly, not in all of medicine, right? I, I, I think someone who, who, for example, has a diagnosis of cancer, for example, uh, I mean, there have been many studies done on this. People who are hopeful uh, tend to live longer. They tend to have a higher quality of life. Uh, you know, so so that's that's something that's inherent to humanity. And I think here we're here we're delving outside of my expertise and and into uh, philosophy or religion or, or, or whatever. But but I, I mean, clearly, I think any any of us who who is in medicine and, and is involved in. Uh, uh, you know, managing and treating sick people have to recognize that you cannot take hope away from people. I mean, hope is, is just a fundamental feature of, 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 of humanity, and we all need that. Now, having said that, I think in, in neurology and in brain injury medicine, there is actually good reasons for hope, right? The brain is, is frankly a very remarkable organ in the way that, that it works and the way that it's designed and, and, uh, the, the capability that it has for repair and recovery and plasticity uh, is it, actually quite remarkable. And I think here it's, it's most remarkably seen in something I was talking about earlier, which is people with severe brain injuries, right? So 
you know, people that come in after a very severe automobile accident or motorcycle accident, um, you know, they, they have, they have large areas of hemorrhage in their brain. Uh, their, their intracranial pressure goes up. They need neurosurgical procedures. They need a lot of invasive monitoring, et cetera. You know, somewhere about 20% of those people make a full recovery, meaning that, uh, you know, within six months to a year, they are back to doing exactly what they were doing before in their life, right? If they were a PhD student in physics, they are back to, to uh, you know, studying, uh, uh, you know, very, very high level uh, science, right? Um, that's it, very remarkable to see. And, and you look in their brain, I mean, their MRI still looks terrible, right? They still have areas of, of scarring uh, in, in important parts of the brain. But you see, you know, how is this person doing so well when their MRI looks so terrible? And I think the answer to that is that, well, there, there is remarkable redundancy and uh, plasticity that's sort of built into to brain function. And, 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 you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough of the time that it's certainly, um, you know, very, very worthwhile and critical giving hope. And of course, in people with milder injuries, um, you know, the, the likelihood of a good outcome is even better. Yes, yes, indeed. It's in fact, um, the things that you just mentioned are the things that exactly gave me hope in the end after losing it from all the consultations with specialists. Uh, I found hope in a book that describes brain injury recovery in patients uh, with more, so much more severe injuries than I had. I mean, there there are several of these books that have been written. I, I'm I'm not sure the one that you're referring to, but there was a very famous case in the United States many years ago. I think when I was still a resident in New York City, of, of the the Central Park jogger. I don't know if you know that story, but the, no. this was this was a young woman who um, you know what was worked in the financial industry, and and this was in the 1980s in New York City, which there was a lot of crime. And, a lot of violence and, and, and she was jogging in Central Park and and she was assaulted and and raped and and had a very severe brain injury uh, and and was in a coma for over a month and had a very very prolonged uh, recovery rehabilitation for many months etc but over time and it took her several years but over time she made essentially a complete recovery she didn't remember anything about the assault or, or her hospitalization, right? That is all she wasn't, her, her brain was so injured that she wasn't forming any memory during that. But, but she wrote a book about her experiences and, and it's a very dramatic book, I think, talking about her, the process of her recovery, et cetera. But, but there've been others. I mean, there've been other, other people, many of them I've met personally, not all, uh, who, whose stories are, are, um, you know, incredible in terms of, of, uh, it really, it really humbles you to know about what what the capacity of the brain can do to recover, and, and obviously the resilience of many people. Yes, have. yeah, it's so it's so wonderful what the brain can do, and how surprising it is um, with regard to how much it can change and adapt. And um, I was even the most. Uh, surprised back when I was learning all of this about how other centers of your brain can take over function that has been lost by uh, certain centers. Um, that was when I decided like, okay, 
this is going to work for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use this. And that's exactly the things that also, for example, uh, tens of thousands dollar, of dollars uh, costing clinics in the US also are basing their treatments on. Um, and it's uh, the thing that I used also in order to recover. So one of the principles is neuroplasticity and even neurogenesis, uh, which you can stimulate uh, by yourself. So, yeah, is, um, um, is this something that you use in practice as well that you mention to your patients? To be honest, because brain injury is so common and, uh, and, and, and it's primarily an unmet medical need, meaning that as neurologists, neurosurgeons, uh, rehabilitation specialists, we actually do not have uh, therapies that are scientifically evident and evidence-based based proven to, to uh, work and to, and to improve outcomes. Unfortunately, that has led, because of there's this large demand, right? And there, there are many, many individuals who, who are struggling to recover from these brain injuries. That has led, um, you know, many clinics who have popped up, frankly, all over the world, right? Promising uh, alternative therapies, right? which some of which may work and some of which may not. So, so, so I think that's another message that I think is really important. Um, it, it, you know, it, obviously, it, you know, as human beings, we are very inclined for, for magical thinking, let's put it this way, which, which, which is part of the same need that we have for hope, right? We, we, we are inclined to magical thinking and, um, you know that works some of the time, but frankly, it's it's not as effective as the scientific method. Right? The scientific method, uh, uh, you know, humanity. We we we've used the scientific method only for about two hundred years, which is a, a a speck of time, a blink of an eye in terms of, of of the time of our history in this planet. But really, the scientific method is what is going to get us out of this brass, right? It's, it's what's going to allow us to. To truly have effective therapies, the way it's worked in other areas of medicine. Uh, so, so I think that's another message that that I would uh, think that the audience to this podcast should should listen in on is to, you know, stick to things. Obviously, you need you need physicians, you need medical specialists who do provide hope, because frankly, there is a lot of hope to to be to be administered, but also who who are uh, you know focused on therapies that that actually are supported by science and are supported by evidence rather than uh, you know there's a lot of stuff out there that just is I think that okay sometimes oftentimes in the field of traumatic brain injury it's hard um, uh, if you're going through it right now to wait for science to catch up with um, what we already can assume based on what has already been proven in several research papers, for example, but not has been peer reviewed enough and consolidated into new protocols uh, and wait for it until we really try. So that's the thing that I did for my recovery. I researched so much, I read so much papers and then based on what I saw coming into existence, I used that and applied it. And that's, that's what helped me. And I would certainly encourage anyone who has the ability, but not everybody has the ability, 
to to enroll in clinical trials, right? Because that's ultimately how we're going to work our way out of this morass, right? And 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 there are there are many clinical trials ongoing, and, and I think if people live in a community where um, you know there's major major university, major research center going on, I think that's something I would definitely. Mm, that's a that's a really good suggestion. Yes. Can I just switch uh, to one more topic uh, that a lot of us have trouble with, um, and that's sleep. So last year, you co-published an article in which you wrote that um, sleep disorders affect over half of mild traumatic brain injury patients. And in your study, you compared, I think, biomarkers of neurodegeneration and cognitive function with sleep quality in soldiers with, with uh, post-concussion syndrome, right? So long-term multiple brain injury. You know, sleep medicine is is a very hot area right now, and or it has been for for the last few years. Uh, we, you know, we're learning a lot about just the basic neurobiology of sleep, how how normal sleep is controlled, and and, and what is the function of sleep. And it's frankly very very exciting science. And we're there have been uh, you know really revolutionary discoveries of that in the last several years. So, so the bottom line is that that's inducing sleep and maintaining sleep involves a, a complex neurobiological circuitry, right? And, and the, the uh, brain nuclei, the brain regions that are involved in this are generally at the base of the brain in, in, uh, in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is, and we've known for a long time, is a part of the brain that is very commonly injured in traumatic brain injury, right? So... So, um, and, and, and obviously we know that patients with traumatic brain injury, one of the most common complaints that they have is, is problems with sleep, right? They, they have problems with getting to sleep, right? They say, you know, I go to bed, but I toss and turn for two, three hours before I finally go to sleep. Uh, some have problems maintaining sleep, saying I go to bed and I eventually fall asleep, and then I wake up at three in the morning and cannot go back to sleep. They have problems feeling sleepy during the day because they're not, you know, they're not getting sleep at, at the regular time. And the other thing that we know about sleep is that it's critical to entrain the the circadian rhythms in the body. Right? So, so there are there are uh, you know much of normal physiology is circadian, right? It happens at certain times of the day. Sometimes it happens at day. Sometimes it happens at night. And and maintaining that normal uh, circadian regularity is really critical, right? If, you know, you may be asleep for eight, 10 hours a day, but if you're not asleep at, at, you know, in the right cycles, you're not really benefits from sleep. And, and, and many of the uh, hormones and neurotransmitters and, and other uh, physiological processes that work to maintain uh, healthy brain functioning and certainly work to sustained recovery from an injury are are made during sleep, right? And, and I think the ones we know more about is growth hormone, the somatotropic axis. So it turns out growth hormone is is released generally in the early hours of the morning, right? And it's an pulsatile release, usually between, uh, you know, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. somewhere in there. It's associated with 
with periods of, of REM sleep, and people who are not getting good enough sleep are not not getting uh, you know enough uh, growth hormone and other benefits of the somatotropic action being released. So so sleep is hugely important, uh, and and uh, you know the the other area that is very very active area of research is that sleep turns out to be really important in in clearing. Um, basically the the brain's uh, refuse right? so so uh, uh, you know aggregated proteins or other things that the brain needs to get rid of they are mostly eliminated during sleep right there's a recent discovery of the lymphatic system in the brain right that, that in, in fact there are pathways by the brain just like there is in every other organ to to get rid of um, uh, you know, dysfunctional proteins or, or other things of this sort, and that's mostly active during sleep. And people who are not sleeping well tend to have problems in aggregating, uh, you know, in, in sort of accumulating these these toxic brain proteins, and that appears to be a big problem in dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and probably a big problem in traumatic brain injury as well. So, so, so frankly, I mean, our our practice in in, in my clinic is. We always pay a great deal of attention to how our patients with TBI are sleeping. Uh, frankly, the majority of them are not sleeping well, and and intervening to help them get better sleep uh, is 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 frankly often a very effective intervention. And we we we're very liberal about getting doing sleep studies where we can actually use EEG and other physiologic assessments to measure their sleep. And, and their stages of sleep, and if they have sleep apnea, that can be treated. If they have other kinds of sleep disorders, those can be treated as well. Not always, but but if they can be treated, that can have a big. Mm. This is uh, something that I completely recognize from my own experience as well. So when I was recovering, right from the onset of my symptoms, it was about one and a half weeks after my injury. Um, I started experiencing very vivid dreams and nightmares during the day. And in the night, so my circadian rhythm was completely gone. And every time I woke up, I felt like I had already gone through a complete day of horror. And my dreams were so vivid, so I could remember every second almost. I don't know if I remember every second, but it felt like it. And then I first had to get rid of all of those memories and get rid of all the emotions that came over me and then start the day. and. It was this it's this downward spiral everything is getting out of control because of that and um once i started sleep therapy um it was so much easier to get a grip on my symptoms and to have energy again also to move forward so i strongly rec uh, um how do you say recommend for everyone to, to also start with this because it's one of the primal, of course, recovery processes of our brains. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really, really important issue. And, you know, there's, there's good data that the use of melatonin, right? So melatonin is the body's natural hormone that uh, um, this, this hypothalamic brain circuitry uses to and, and uh, you know it is available as a as a nutritional supplement uh, in, in most countries and there's good data that the use of melatonin uh, can help improve people's sleep after TBI and not in, not in every situation but in enough of them to be 
certainly worthwhile thing to try. And it's a very simple thing. Yes, yes, it is. And um, it's something that I think, well, in my experience, I don't know what you think, but uh, I didn't want to take it for too long because I didn't want my body to produce less and less of it because I was already um, giving it. So then I replaced it for valerian root and that helped me sleep as well. So it's a natural, it's a plant, um, but it doesn't help for everyone. So yeah, it's just a suggestion. I want to thank you for your time and especially for your dedication, your insights, everything that you just share with us. I feel that this is going to be so valuable for a lot of listeners. And it's even been, been a bit healing for me as well, because after the fact, it's so good to hear the stories, these people who are really advancing the field <laughs> and helping us um, get a better home in the medical area. So thank you for your work. Yeah, you know, congratulations for putting this together. I know that you've talked with Dr. Moss and you've talked to Lindsay Wilson. I think you, you have, you've already been able to collect really many of the, many of the uh, thought leaders and intellectual leaders of the brain injury field. So that's terrific. Congratulations to you for this project that you've launched yourself on. Thank you very much. Well, it's not for me, it's for all of our listeners. So I hope it helps them. That's the whole goal. So um, I will continue collecting thought leaders on my podcast <laughs> and um, bringing all of the knowledge to everyone. Now I would love to hear from you. What do you take away from this episode? Is there something that you can apply to your life right away? Head on over to lifeyana.com and leave your comment now. And if you want to hear and read more concussion stories, actionable steps and inspiration, be sure to subscribe to the Lifeyana email list while you're there so that you never miss out on new materials we constantly make for you. If you want to support this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash concussion stories. Thank you for listening to this Concussion Stories episode by Liveyana. May you be well and may you be happy.